Hey, it's Karen Hunter from the Karen Hunter Show on Sirius XM Urban View. Here's a highlight from today's show. This woman actually came in with the energy to just brighten up everything. So I think she's in the right field, getting people mentally yeah, together. Uh, she, of course, is the psychiatry resident uh, director, residency director at Howard University, y'all. The one and only yeah. Dr. Danielle Hairston. Welcome. Hello, hello. Thank you. Thank you yeah. for having me in the space. Oh, my goodness. Dr. Caritha Mitchell's here, of course. Um, I was excited to talk with you. You got people through uh, the pandemic with with all of your goodness. And um, before we get into what you're up to, taking, you know, going to medical school and then deciding on psychiatry is yeah. heavy. What, what was that? choice um so i went to medical school at howard uh so i'm pretty howard through and through other than Rutgers, so i did go to undergrad in jersey um but yeah i didn't like anything else so um okay wait so pause pause dr dr harrison so going to medical school you knew you wanted to be a doctor yes i knew i wanted to be a doctor um I thought I wanted to do maybe like sports medicine. I thought I wanted to do something like that. Um, I thought I, then I wanted to do internal medicine because I wanted to work with HIV patients. Um, so that's what the thought was. I was in the internal medicine interest group initially. Um, so shout out to them, though I could never do that. Um, but that's where I wanted to be. And then in my third year of medical school, I had the opportunity to rotate on the addiction consult service and to than to do consults for psychiatry. And I was like, yo, this is my jam. Like I get to go in, talk to people, um, look at their medical issues. So I see everyone dealing with everything from trauma, delirium, dementia, depression, anxiety, panic attacks. I go everywhere from labor and delivery to I usually cover the ED. Shout out to my team covering without me right now. Um, So that was the place for me. And it was clear that that was the place for me. Now I am a black woman going into psychiatry whose family was like you're doing what uh you want to do what you want to talk to crazy people I was like okay so I don't talk to crazy people um everyone can use a psychiatrist in my opinion or at least a therapist um so but now if you talk to them they're like yes yes uh my daughter my niece is the psychiatrist the director at Howard yes that's her (laughs) um I mean, so, you, you're touching yeah. on something because in the, in our community, like we like we've been imbued with anti-blackness. We've also been misdirected into this, you know, mental health. You know, we can just push through because my ancestors picked cotton, dropped babies, and just kept moving. But that's the problem. We carry that trauma in us epigenetically as a result of that just pushing through, and it shows up. Y'all, it shows up. It shows up in the young lady that's supposedly having a baby with R. Kelly. It shows up. It keeps showing up. Dr. Harrison, does he, he get conjugal visits? I want to talk about that. But I, I, I don't know. I was wondering, but I, what is going I need on? to mind my business. Yes. But and drink your yes, water. That's <laughs> it's right here. Um, but yes. You know, in generational trauma is my little button. That's what I'm saying. Even in my house, they're like, okay, okay, you're not at work. But I'm just, it's important because it's important that we don't carry things. So for so long, it was, we don't talk about this. You don't put your business in the streets. And it was also a means of survival, right? In the times of enslavement, you don't talk about your feelings. You don't say you're sad, you're mad, you're unhappy. If you want to survive, if you want to see the next day, right? And then that was passed on into institutionalism. So then 
you don't say anything about not being happy because uh, Jim Crow is here and we can put you in an institution. Many people have family members who've been put in institutions for um, protesting, for demanding their civil rights, for saying that I should, uh, I would like to go to college and being put in a mental institution on a psych hold in Mississippi um, for complaining about things. There's a whole, there's a book by Jonathan Metzl. He's a white guy, but I appreciate and love him. Um, Jonathan Metzl wrote a book called the up here, the protest psychosis about how schizophrenia became a black man's disease. It used to be like hysteria, white women who don't listen to their husbands. And then suddenly it became, oh, these James Brown looking figures. If you have someone who's being belligerent out in the streets, who's protesting with the, it was even a ad for antipsychotic medication. So there's a whole lot of reasons why, you know, we don't talk about things. So, I don't want to put it all in the community and saying, you know, it's us that we carry the stigma. Thank you. Because- Thank you for that. Because I, I didn't have this information. I'm going to read this book over the break now. Thank you. I'm sorry, wow, Dr. Mitchell. Yes. Well, it's just so powerful that you lay it out that way, because that history is precisely why I'm so clear about the fact that it is, you know, keeping certain people in their proper place that so much of this stuff emerges. But I'm struck, Dr. Hairston, by the way that you're talking about being exposed really was the way that you found this passion. So I wonder if you would say a bit more about the way that you think about how our listeners can think about exposing themselves and the people in their lives to a range of experiences that get them excited about what they might be passionate about. That's one thing that what you've shared makes me think about. But I also wonder what you might say, and I think that your work around this overcoming racial barriers and medical training may be related to it. I wonder what you might say about the fact that there still is a way that black anti-blackness is stigmatizing black people even seeking when they do find out and they do want to seek out this kind of care, anti-blackness is often working against them. I've had, you know, students who have talked about that experience for them as they're doing work in the hospital. So if you if you would just share some about what we can be on guard around in that issue too. Okay, Dr. Mitchell, that was loaded. That was a lot, Um, but (laughs) I'm ready for this. So um, exposure was important. Visibility was important, right? So for me to see, and I had the privilege and the honor of being trained at Howard. So I see a Black chairman who's a psychiatrist. I see a Black dean. I see my attendings are Black. So I know that Black excellence is real, which is opposed to some of my students that I mentor now who reach out to me and say, I've never seen a black psychiatrist. Like you're the only black psychiatrist I've seen like on YouTube or something like that. So the visibility is important and the mentorship is important because we see that other groups, other people mentor, they stand up, they add you to a project. And that's what had to happen with me. My mentor, who was the chair of psychiatry, he said, oh, you're uh, you're going to this conference. It was like my first day. He said, you're going to this conference. You're going to Germany. Do you have a passport? I, I said, I do. All right, I'm ready to go because of that exposure and us looking after each other and him doing that for me. And so that's what I do. Even uh, don't let the youth fool you like this is what I do to try to mentor and strengthen the amount of black psychiatrists that there are um there are less than some people say two percent three percent I'll give it three for now um psychiatrists who identify as black in this country so 
when you think about what you're up against, yes, you're up against, we got to take the MCAT, we got to go through undergrad, we got to go to medical school, you got to go to residency, you got to go to fellowship, you got to take all these boards, you got to get all these licenses, it's a lot, right? But then we have our own different load of the racism that's in medicine and in medical training. And without having a strong network like the Black Psychiatrists of America, like Howard University, like Black Psychiatry, um, it would be a complete loss. Like mm. it's it's to go through. I'm everyone writes in their personal statements. I want to save people. I wanna, I wanna go to medical school to help. I wanna do this for my community. And then every day something is happening or every other day, something is happening to make you question, why am I even in this space? Um, a black psychiatrist named Chester Pierce was passed away, coined the term microaggression. So, you know, people talk about microaggressions all the time. Um, these daily insults, just daily, always something going on to, there goes that baby, always something going on to upset you, to insult you, to make you question who you are and what you know. Now, if hot, I can say if I had not come from Howard to know that, yes, there are excellent Black physicians, excellent Black psychiatrists, and my mentors that I had from the BPA, I wouldn't have made it. There were there are days that, um, I think the first time I realized that I was rotating at, I'm at Howard, but yes, we rotate in other hospitals throughout the city in D.C., if you know, you know what other hospitals there are here. And I remember being excited for my rotation. Um, there was me and there was a student from Georgetown, a white male from Georgetown on the rotation. And I would say, like, they would ask questions. I'd be like, I think it's this. And they'd say, Georgetown guy, Mike, hello, what is your, what's your answer? Oh, yes. And then they even wrote in my evaluation, Danielle could be more like Mike. I said, are you, are you joking? And and I, let me tell you, I'm the child of older parents. So my father was in the civil rights movement. He was in sit-ins, was arrested in, um, in North Carolina in Durham. I'm not new to this. I, I watched Roots with my mother when I was like eight. So I understand racism, but it was then when I was like, oh, this is what we're doing here now. And then it grew to other things like, and other physicians can tell you, like being in spaces with patients and they'll say, well, I don't want to see that black B or um, I don't want to see that doctor or I want a white doctor. And you were really going through all this training Mm -hmm. and this is what you have to deal with on top of all the other stuff that I named for y'all. But this is what I have to deal with. And then you also have to work in a system where you might have an attending or a white supervisor who doesn't even acknowledge that a patient said that or excuses it or doesn't question it or doesn't say to the patient, that's not what we do here. Mm-hmm. And then you're gaslit and people make you think that it's your issue. Mm-hmm. So it's, did I answer the question? I hope that I answered the yeah, questions you, about you, that. You did more than that. Uh, Dr. Danielle Hairston is here. Danielle Hairston, MD. She's a doctor. Put respect on that. Um, Thank you. She's also a mommy. She's got a new baby. Postpartum yeah. depression among black women. We don't get a chance to, to um, express that. We don't get a chance to say we're tired. We don't get a chance to, you know, Michelle Obama calls children terrorists and people are like, oh, oh my goodness. She was like, yeah, but you love them. But let's be real. They they are selfish. They're needy. They're all these things. But we don't yeah, have tiny we, tyrants. Yeah, tiny yeah. terrorists. We don't they we are. don't get a chance yeah. to express that. So what so what advice do you have to women like yourself and, and who's helping you? 
Oh, I have uh, my mother is here. She has her own place to live, I think, but she's always here at my house. Um, her dad also, and then um, I also have a nanny who is here, and I guess my mother is her supervisor because she never leaves her alone. So yes, I have um, <laughs> a whole ma- team. Mama's not playing. She's like, Mm-mm. Mama is. She is not playing. She's always here. And, um, but I I do appreciate that, especially you know I work in a emergency setting, a lot of times crisis setting, so you never know when I'm going to be. Coming home, but how to handle this? Um, I just want to say there is postpartum depression, but there's also postpartum anxiety. There's also postpartum psychosis. So there's a lot of things to look at. Define those for us. So postpartum depression is what you think when you hear about the low mood um, and feeling like you you can't do this, um, having difficulty with sleep, eating. energy interest especially particularly interest in the child interest in this care um but then there's also anxiety there's also people who have anxieties like extreme anxieties about whether or not I'm able to care for this um baby am I going to be able to do this and also sleep is involved there um then postpartum psychosis is probably the scariest and really what I would identify as a psychiatric emergency where someone may have previously had a psych issue like schizophrenia or bipolar disorder um and they start to have all types of delusions like maybe that the baby is evil that someone's trying to get their baby um that the baby is not safe the baby might be it can be all types of extremes like the baby might be better off dead or the baby might be possessed or um they need to lock the baby in their rooms all types of things I see um so that's the extreme like psychosis being confused hearing voices feeling paranoid and that's something that we might not even see until you go through such the stressful environment of um giving birth and delivery and pregnancy so um what is my advice for people at going through this one sleep is so important and it's it's difficult for us as moms because a lot of times people tell you like oh sleep with sleep when the baby sleeps that's it's not a thing people need help (laughs) like what would be most helpful and what was most helpful for me is that I had a postpartum doula and she would come over and she would teach me what to do because I never had a baby um and then but she would also say you can go take a nap I'd be like I can't I have to she's like no no you you can go take a nap right now like you can take a nap she would tell the dad, let her take a nap after I leave too. So I would say sleep is most important and talking about it. Like if your OB actually asks you these questions at that, at these visits, actually voice say, yes, I am struggling because there are, because there are services. Um, they're not widely known. People don't say like, here's the service for you when you come in that postpartum visit, but there are services um, that are available. Will insurance cover Dr. Danny? Well, Oh, yeah. Insurance will cover. And also a lot of these places have collaborative care models where there is even a psychiatrist or a therapist or a counselor or um, even these doulas who work with mental health professionals. But it's not widely known. Is that at everywhere? Is that at a Medicaid covered facility and hospital and clinic? Maybe not, but they do have programs and they do have grants. So these cities better listen yes. these cities better use these grants that they apply for yeah and and this is part of we don't know what we don't know you know and i'm sure that this is new information for a lot of people listening um i just told smith um can she come back like every chance we can get her coming back i know you you're doing other things as well but um, we're going to tap you in as that much as possible and my dream <laughs> yes no you, you no because listen first of all to have a regular ass person speaking in the way we, you know what I'm saying? Like it's, it's not all technical. It's, it's just, you're just, oh, 
home. You feel like home. And we, we need that. We need that. Um, we have to go to a break. When we come back, I, I want you to give us the difference between psychiatry and psychology therapy and what you do. Cause I think a lot of people are confused. When do I need a psychiatrist? When do I just need a therapist? Um, and, and those who are raising black boys, it's really tough. Can we talk a little bit about that too? When we come back? We can. Okay. All right. Dr. Caritha Mitchell's here and Daniel Hairston MD is in the building. Um, before, before we went to break and it's exciting. Uh, the difference between psychiatry, psychology, therapist versus what you do. Okay. So um, a psychiatrist like me went to medical school. So I went to medical school, all the things, the MCAT, the all the exams, all the licensed things. So I got to go through all the specialties and I am licensed to write medication so I can prescribe medication. So a psychiatrist goes through medical school, writes medications, can also do therapy, but that is important. So the same test that a surgeon has to take, a pediatrician has to take, a OB, I have to take all those tests to get out of that stuff so that I could go into my specialty and residency. Um, and then also fellowship. So I sub sub specialize in um, consultation liaison. So that's the person who does um, psychiatry all throughout the hospital. So like I said, if I have to go to L&D for postpartum depression, if I have to go to the ICU for someone who's delirious or the neuro floor for dementia, um, I go everywhere. So from the ED to L&D, I might even go to dialysis if they need me over there. So that's what I do as a psychiatrist. A psychologist does not prescribe medications, but they um, train in therapy. Um, sometimes it depends on a special type of therapy, but they can be a PsyD or they can be a PhD. Um, and then also who does therapy are counselors, so licensed counselors um, you might see, or like MFT, so marriage family therapists um, can also provide therapy. A psychiatrist can also do provide therapy. So I do have no telling that many people, but I do have about 10. No, no, no. I have about five therapy patients who I see regularly. Um, those are my little sub, sub special, my little special patients that I see. Again, remember I said I want to do HIV. So I work in the HIV clinic one day off the week and that's oh, where wow. I see my therapy patient. So when would someone need you? Like, what, so the medicine is, is the criteria. Like when would someone come to see Dr. Hairston versus going on better help? You know, so you can start with a therapist. I, I recommend that people start with a therapist, but then when it gets to the point of like, I can't sleep, I can't manage this on my own, talking about it is not getting it done, doing these activities is not getting it done. All the therapy in the world is not going to manage a manic episode. Like you, you need some medication for that. You need some medication for your mania. You need some medication for your psychosis. Like that's that's where we are. So when it's at a critical level or when it's that you can't manage it, it's not working, just therapy. The best treatment is actually a therapy and medication combo for most things. So um that's why I like to work with the psychi with the psychologists. I like to work with the um, social workers because they can also provide, I left them out, they can also provide therapy. Um, listen, wherever you can get it, I think that people should get therapy because it's a privilege and everyone doesn't have the ability to have it. Now, a psychiatrist is when you need some medication. You need an antidepressant, you need some medication for that anxiety, for the psychosis. Um, that's when I come in uh, on the scene. Dr. Mitchell. So this is so fascinating. It sounds like if I'm right, 
that those who are in the level of psychosis and needing that kind of medication are a smaller population. So if I'm right about that, could you say something about the power of sleep for those who don't have those kinds of extremes? Because the fact that sleep was so related to everything you talked about feels to me like there's something we should learn about the way that when we sleep, our body takes care of some hygiene around our brains. Am I right about that? There's some there's some toxins that get flushed right out that. when we sleep. So yeah. I wonder if you'll share some with us about that. Yes, you, of course, Dr. Mitchell, you are on point. Um, you need that restoration. You need that restorative impact of sleep. So when you don't get that, you start to see even raises in uh, higher levels of cortisol, your stress hormones going out of control, your diet, even things like menstrual cycles can all be all thrown out because of sleep, because of stress. Um, not just like, oh, I can't sleep now. I'm not gonna have a period. Like, I don't want to, it's a scene like that, but you know, a combination of not sleeping, depression, stress, all these types of things. So sleep is important. So important that there are psychiatrists and neurologists who specialize just in sleep. So ah. there are people and pulmonologists as well. There are people who that's their job. They work in the sleep center. That's what they do. They go to fellowship because sleep is so crucial and critical. And I think that maybe people don't, people always think, you know, sometimes people in the community say like, I'll, I'll sleep when I'm dead. We know no. you're going to be dead. <laughs> no. And it's not funny. How much uh, somebody online, you know, talked about eating properly, homeostasis, alkaline versus, you know, acidic, uh, exercising, you know, before bedtime, you know, to, are, are there things we can do holistically to, you know, get that good sleep in and to balance ourselves mentally? Absolutely. So at first I was not, I did not buy into this when I was, I think when I was a, a intern and a medical student and one of our attendings who is now my colleague, um, was like, you know, exercise and diet is important. She's like, you got to ask the patients, are they exercising? And I was like, I'm not asking them that. I don't have time for that. I got to go see my next patient. You know, <laughs> like I'm not buying into this, but then I realized that she knows what she's talking about. Like, yes, there is, you can see that endorphins are raised. People's moods are better when they exercise. There are these people who can exercise at five in the morning. I don't know them, but there are people who can do stuff like that. I'm not one of them. Um, but there are also some people who exercise in the evening and then they can get a good night's sleep like that's how they feel like that's part of their routine so we definitely absolutely see that exercise can be an improvement in mood it can help you with anxiety also so some people actually like some psychiatrists will say that they like prescribe exercise like that is part of your treatment plan I want to know about um your meds, yes, I want to know about your sleep, but I want to know about your exercise. And that's also a good way for me to tell where my patients are. So if I know that they exercise regularly and then they tell me they haven't been doing it, I'm like, okay, something's not right. Like this is um, a temperature check right here. And I'm asking them, well, why aren't you doing that? You usually do it three times a week. You haven't gone all month. That's giving me a red flag that something's going on with you. So are you basically saying that things like endorphins and hormones are medicine for our mental health? Endorphins can be medicine for your mental health. I, I, I will, I will agree with that one. Okay. Dr. Dr. Caritha Mitchell is here. Dr. Danielle Hairston. We have some callers. Um, before we go to them, the black boys uh, that I was talking about, I, I read that during the pandemic and I was like, what is happening? What is going on here? Um, has, has this made it to your radar? Is this on your radar? 
Oh yeah, definitely. People are always asking me about this and I, I do not see children unless it's in the emergency room. But um, so the people who specialize in child psychiatry, they are amazing and there aren't that many of them and they are not that many black um, child psychiatrists. So we need to value them, value them, value them. But so there's a, a couple of things that I think about this when I think about black men or black youth who are dying by suicide and they say, oh, the rates are up. And I wonder, were you all even looking at the rates before. Before, mm. oh, that's an important part for me because did you care about this population? Did you even check on this population before 2015 to even tell me what the rates were? Were you even paying attention? Were you even doing that? And that's not just you know psychiatrists who need to know that. Medical examiners need to be knowing that and need to be aware of that. Did you even? put any value and think about what's going on with them. So now when we see this rate, I'm like, there has to be some impact of this increased rate and people actually reporting that and people actually looking into it. So I think that has, that's an important component. Also, um, there's a lot of things. There's there's social media, there's bullying. Um, in my house, my partner is like, everybody gets bullied. Like, what's, what's the problem? Like, I got, you know, you got bullied. And I'm like, yeah, but now they're getting bullied to the point that people don't want to live anymore. So we have to take it seriously and we have to understand what's going on that this is not just, oh, okay. They said that on Facebook or they said that on Instagram. I'm not going to talk about it anymore. Like it's a, it's a real thing. And I think that again, us acting like it's not a real thing, us questioning like, oh, did they really die by suicide? Or, well, they seemed happy, or I don't believe it. That just puts us in a worse position. We have to know that this is something that happens. This is something that occurs. I I continue to practice, right? And I see a majority of Black people. And I see people come in after a suicide attempt. I see that happen, right? So what does, what does that look like? You know, we just, that. we lost Twitch um, a couple of weeks ago. And you know, it, and, and then the young woman this year that was Miss America on TV doing, you know, it's like the mother, she, she seemed happy. Like, are there signs that we should be looking out for, for the people in our lives that, you know, before it gets to that point or are people who are committed to taking their lives very, you know, um, committed to doing that. And there's really nothing we can do. Like what, yes. So the answer is, is both. So okay. there are some, in some people, there are things that we can look out for, but in other people, if that's what they were determined to do, then unfortunately they are going to make that happen. But things that I think that also a lot of times people say, well, they seem so happy. They, they seem, they didn't seem depressed. They didn't seem unhappy. And especially for people whose job is to make you laugh or to make you smile or to make you, uh, to entertain you, they put on that mask. That's the mask that they put on every day. So of course they can keep up that appearance that nothing is bothering them. But I guess the people who are hopeful, maybe the people who know them intimately, but maybe even not realize that something is different. So I think that things that are important to look out for, which is kind of challenging in this time of the pandemic, because, you know, there's, there's isolation, but we see a lot of isolation. We've seen, we've all gone through isolation. So there's isolation, not, not having an interest in things anymore, not wanting to do things with people anymore are um, things that you should pay attention to. Um, like if you text them and they used to come to stuff and then not that, oh, they got a new partner or something, they don't have time for you, but now it's, um, I just don't feel like it. I'm just not interested in that. That's that's the key, that they're not interested in things anymore. Also, it doesn't have to be depression. It could be a trauma. It could be some sort of 
trauma or some sort of stressor, but the key to really think about is that they don't have any hope for the future. They don't see anything changing or getting better. And so if you hear people say stuff like that, you need to be concerned. And that's a time that I would say that this is time to um, involve a professional. Can you, you talked about this book that I'm getting and people being committed. My, my um, mother talked about her grandfather being put into, you know, a mental institution. Like you could just snatch people up and people were getting money for that back in the day, right? In the fifties and sixties, people were getting money to put people away, right? Yeah, I I don't, people seem to like think like oh how how could this happen the the people who <laughs> were involved in slavery and policies they didn't just disappear you know they just uh went to medical school and then they uh-huh. went to they went to <laughs> law school and, and to became, government yeah became judges the government yeah. <laughs> they made policies like oh how can i continue to oppress you slavery might be over but let me think about what structures i can put in place to continue to oppress you so of course we see those structures in medicine we see them in education we see them in policies we see them in even home values and we know you know all of those things so yeah (laughs) doctors are racist judges are racist because this is america so then i i think one of the cases that i can really think of from the 60s was and i i did a podcast episode and i got to talk to um a relative of one of these people is that one of the first um black men who wanted to enroll in the university of mississippi they the sheriff came, they institutionalized him, they put him into a mental, um, I I guess it's asylum at that time, or mental hospital, state hospital, um, because they said that he must be psychotic, he must be crazy, if he thinks that he, a Black man, can enroll at the University of Mississippi. Wow. So... (sighs) 866-801-8255. Dr. Hairston is here. Dr. Danielle Hairston. Dr. Caritha Mitchell is here as well. Let's go to Kyle in Atlanta. Here's a question for you, Dr. Hairston. Hi, Kyle. Welcome. Hey, Karen. How you doing? Good, brother. Great. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for this conversation. This conversation is is just so important. And and the ironic thing is that literally today, I was on the phone with my health insurance trying to get some kind of direction on how I can get some counseling on my mental health. So that question that you asked about uh, psychiatry, psychologists, uh, clinical social workers and all that, they just kind of threw me a website and told me, like, you know, figure it out and tell us which one you want to make an appointment with. And that, so that, that was just kind of frustrating for me. But what, what I wanted to ask to, to, to Dr. Harrison is, is um, you know, as, as we're going through this journey, um, you know, I'm, I'm in my, um, my, I guess my mid-30s now, a lot of my peers during the pandemic, you know, we're getting into our professional lives. And then when we got hit uh, with, 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 with staying at home, um, you know, a lot of us, you know, we were just on Zoom all day. We were at home, bored, doing more drinking or, or maybe even getting into more substances than we normally would. What kind of advice would you give to, to, to people of my, of my age and my generation about how to go about seeking the proper mental health so that you don't slide into addiction or that you don't slide into uh, d- depression or, or, or increased anxiety uh, and you can get those proper tools. Um, so thank you for calling. And I'm also in your age group. So I will say that 
first for you, you got to push back on that insurance company. And I just, if I can encourage you to advocate for yourself. So say you can say, well, I couldn't figure it out. So can you help me? Because I get emails and calls from insurance companies who say, my client is looking for a black woman psychiatrist. Can you, are you accepting new patients? So they can do that, reach out for you. Of course, they're first going to tell you to try to do it yourself, but you, you pay for that insurance. You push back on them and say, actually, I need some help. This is what I'm specifically looking for. And I need someone from your uh, company to help me to find this person. I could, I, I don't know. I couldn't see. I don't know. I couldn't find it on the website. So can you help me and provide some clarity? And I think that for us from this generation and for everyone, it is to consider... I, I'm not anti these apps if they're done the right way, like these like better help. I'm not, I think that is helpful if that is what you need and if meets you where you are. Consider what you need. If you need, um, if you can go through an app and talk to somebody on Zoom, if you can, if you need to come in in person, I would say whatever it needs, whatever you need, get that done. Like don't have any shame talk to your friends about it because they might not have told you that they have a therapist too. Like I know some people are putting it out here on Twitter and some people are put, I know Twitter is questionable for now, but some people are putting it out there on the gram. Like even my mother told me, Michelle, even Michelle Obama said that she was depressed during the pandemic. Mm -hmm. So actually talk to your peers. I'm not saying, saying they need to be your therapist and you don't need your, your brother, sister, family, cousin to be your therapist, but say like, this is something I'm going through. Does anyone know anything about that? I'll put it in the family group chat to see if anyone knows. Like, and so they one know that you are about your business and try to advocate for yourself. And then they might be willing to share as well. But my main feedback for you is push on that insurance and tell them this is what I'm looking for. Um, help me. Thank you. Hmm. Uh 866-801-8255. Since you brought up the racial thing, I'm not, I'm not, I'm I'm all about advocates, people who are going to advocate for me, not race. Cause there's some black people that are horrible, you know? So just because a doctor's black doesn't mean that that doctor is going to be for you because anti-blackness shows up in us as well. Um, how do we find a therapist? Some people like I can never go to a white therapist. Um, mm-hmm. or a, yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I could also not go to a white therapist. So shout out to my therapist. Who's a black woman with natural hair. Also who has glasses. Like I'm like, this is who so you, so you I'm, seek yourself. Is that I'm, yeah. I'm looking for someone who can identify with me and yes. my struggles and my experience. That is what's important to me. However, I do have two friends who have white therapists and have been with them for years. That's good for them. Um, and I just wanted to address this that, oh, you know, there's some bad black doctors. I, I've heard that before and understand that we are educated in the same system. So these cultural norms, these institutional norms are always going to be passed down to you so that this is how you treat black people. Even if you are black, be suspicious of black people. Black people don't feel pain. Don't, don't prescribe them this. Don't believe them when they say this. We are all educated in that system, right? So it's a dichotomy. Kind of Who's saying I'm, that, Dr. Hairston? Is that instruction? Is there a professor that is? Is there a class for that? Like, who is telling people that? You you know, it's a hidden curriculum. It's it's what's wow. it's what's it's what's allowed, right? So when I work in a setting and I see certain physicians giving black people these high doses of antipsychotics, not really caring about the side effects, doing these things, and I and you have to ask them, and I say like, why are you doing that? And it's simply asking that question, like, why did you give that person all that medication? And it's, and I've heard back, 
oh, well, I was trained or I was taught that Black men can get higher doses of antipsychotics. Incorrect. Like Black men actually are at higher risk for these um, who have never had these medications are at higher risk for these extreme side effects. But these are things that are passed down, biases that are passed down, but accepted, right? So um, yeah, so we are educated in this system. We are educated in this system. So if a, a, a black a black doctor, oh, that black doctor sucks or that black doctor didn't listen to me either, know that that's how that they've been educated and socialized as well. So yes, yeah. yes. Wow. Um, mm, Devante, Devante, Charlotte, Charlotte, North Carolina. Welcome to the Karen Hunter Show. Thank you for calling. Hey, Dr. Hunter, Dr. Mitchell, and Dr. Harrison. How y'all doing today? I'm not a doctor. But, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I ain't go to medical school and I ain't get my PhD. So I'm not accepting that. No, never. I, I, let that for the people that do that. I do this. Yeah, do that. Okay. Well, yeah, Thank I'm a first time caller, long, very long time listener. But um, I just had a quick question about. You're welcome. <laughs> All right, thank you. I had a question about uh, young black boys and the suicide, and I have a 16-year-old son. And about a week ago, you know, he um, had told a friend about possibly hurting himself. And it just threw me through a loop because on the outside, again, you know, he looked, I mean, he has everything going positive for him, but we just can't figure out what could have triggered that thought. And we did take him to the emergency room. Um, they had like one-on-one talking, you know, conversations with him, but he wanted to have, to have me and his mother out the room. And, we know, you know, and we, to this day, we're still trying to figure out what could cause it. So basically, I was just wondering, could it be maybe medication we might need to put him on? Or I, I just don't know. And I just wanted to see y'all guys to point me in the direction to possibly help out my son okay thank you Devante. um well let me say that obviously i'm not his doctor i'm, I'm not treating him but a couple things are positive one that he told someone and that you took action as a parent so i want to commend you for that because Others might have gone in a different direction. Others might have downplayed it and not even sought to get him help. So I really want you to focus not so much on what's the reason, because there could be many reasons and he could never really want to tell you what that reason was. I can't sit up here and try to hypothesize about what the reason might be. So not to focus on what's the reason, but just to focus on getting him help and someone to talk to so that he can eventually talk to you about it. So yes, the parents have to get out the room. That is, well, we always bring you back, but yes, parents need to step out because sometimes adults, but sometimes children, adolescents don't want to talk about it. They're embarrassed. They don't know what the reaction is going to be. And it could be anything from, you know, I've been using substances. I'm questioning my gender identity. I've had some, some sort of traumatic experience that I don't want, I don't want to talk about it with them. I don't want to disappoint my parent or I don't want them to become upset by what I have to say. So I want to focus so much on what could it be? Because a lot of times people say, parents, especially um, like they have everything. It's not about having everything. 
you don't know what's going on inside that is impacting their day to day. And you don't know what it could be like for him to get up and go to school every single day. We don't know what could be happening. So not to focus so much on why at this time, but on getting him the help so that he can figure out why. And maybe eventually he will be able to share that with you. So you're already knowing what you need to do. Just make sure he stays in that treatment. Yeah. And if he never shares, there's no indictment on the parent. You know, I feel like, you know, parents feel like it's, well, I gave birth to you, so I should know all of the things, but you've given birth to a unique human being with its own path and vision for life and, or, you know, and so let yourself off the hook. Would you say that Dr. Dr. Hairston, that parents sometimes put too much on themselves, uh, blaming themselves. Yes. And I think even when, um, someone dies by suicide, a lot of times parents are like, well, I didn't see it or what, what happened. They probably didn't want you to see it, or they might not have wanted you to intervene, or you just never know what could have been going on and what the thought process was. And, um, I don't want people to feel like, well, I missed that. I missed that. Now, if someone is telling you something and you do find something, please take action on that. But it should not be a life sentence of blaming yourself for this yes. indefinitely because that doesn't help any of us. Um, and Devante saying, we should, should we put him on medication? Can can parents ask doctors to put their children on med- Like what, what's the protocol for even, you know, sent, bringing someone to see someone? you know, who's under the age of 18 or even over the age of 18. If you have someone in your home with dementia, perhaps, you know, like what, what response, you know, what's our responsibility or our, by law, what can we do? Well, parents have to agree for their child to be placed on medication. So parents have to consent to that. So from that side, now you can't just come in and say like, Dr. Harrison, put my child on this and this and this. And I'm going to be like, oh, okay, let me know. <laughs> so they have to do a thorough <laughs> assessment and evaluation, but evaluations and treatment planning go best when you involve the person, the patient, and in this case for children, the parents, so that we can all talk about it and see where we should be. So you can you can say that I am interested in hearing about medication. You can't necessarily force someone to start medication, but parents do under 18. Mm, well, it varies in some states about uh, those teenage years, but can do have to consent for medication for most children. All right. I know you have to run. Can we take one more call? One more before you. Okay. Um, Deborah okay. in Maryland. Welcome to the Karen Hunter Show. You're on with Dr. Hairston. Hey. Hey, Dr. Hairston and um, Karen. How are you all doing tonight? Dr. Mitchell's here too. Yep. We're all good. Thank you. Hello. Yeah, I just wanted, I, I kind of jumped in on the conversation, but I, there was something, I know you probably were talking about, you know, getting a psychiatrist, but I just wanted to chime in and said, say that um, I I typically don't go to any doctor that's not, that doesn't look like me. Okay. Any. I mean, listen, yeah, we, me we've either. had enough uh, information, we've had enough trauma you know, from the gynecologist uh, experiment during enslavement to the radiation experiment to the Tuskegee non-treatment. To, I mean, and probably dozens more that we don't even know about, because if you can own people and do whatever you want with their bodies, we can only imagine what was done on those plantations to us uh, in the name of science and medicine. So, yeah, this natural aversion to go into a doctor who is not culturally responsive or culturally aware 
I think is self-preservation. But, you know, at the same time, you know, we have to demand certain things. When my dad had cancer, the doctor tried to treat a certain kind of way and I wasn't having it. And they had to call security, which was fine with me because we had a conversation. But, you know, that, that doctor showed up differently the next time because, you know, like to your point, Dr. Hairston, we have to advocate not just for ourselves, for our family members and not accept any behavior or any treatment that is subpar. That is beneath what we deserve to have, which is excellent. So, yeah, I, I ain't mad at that, Deborah. I, I'm with you either. If, if they're not Black, they need to have been trained at Howard or they need to have some type yes. of connection that, let me know, that lets me know that they are um, culturally aware. I think that, and I, I learned this from my grandmother when she was in the hospital, when I was a medical student, she was like, I feel like my potassium is low. They're not listening to me. And she said, my granddaughter is a doctor. I was like, I'm not a doctor yet. She was like, my granddaughter daughter is a doctor you better listen to her and I was like listen can we I am a student doctor at Howard and I do need for you to uh, check my grandmother's potassium before I have to get upset in here um so sometimes you know you do have to have someone to advocate and I've had to do that for numerous family members I've even had to do that for myself um last year uh being pregnant so um yeah I'm with you though I all of my shout out to I have a mostly black woman physician team out here in these dc streets love it and when you come back we want to delve more into you know uh racism in the medical field and what how we can empower ourselves you know i love the model in cuba where you know on each block they have like a doctor and a nurse and they know everybody's history and they're checking on them like you know we need to get back to that but where do we find the doctors because as you mentioned not enough of us going into medicine we got to inspire more kids more young people to to want to pursue these different places where we have need and lack we can't all be in the emergency room can't all be you know sports medicine we some of us have to do the the work that uh takes us to the to freedom so uh you're doing that yes yes Dr. Danielle, thank you for coming today. I can't oh, wait to thank see you for having more. me. More, more, more. Oh, and and congratulations amazing. on the oh, baby. Thank you. Yes. thank you. Thank you. Hey, this is Karen Hunter. You can listen to the Karen Hunter Show live every Monday through Friday at 3 p.m. East on Sirius XM Urban View Channel 126 or anytime on the Sirius XM app.